Father, we marvel at the depths to which you would come in order to bring us to your heights. We have no words to describe our appreciation and gratitude that you would send your only son to the world, that you, Jesus, would trade kingship for that of washing the disciples' feet. I pray, Lord, for the world, many sad hearts this December, many needy hearts, guilty hearts. I pray they would look in the manger and look at the condescension of God from heaven to earth, from a throne to a manger, giving up everything, absolutely everything. And they would say that my hope is in the love of God to become a child. I pray, Lord, that they will watch the life of that child all the way to manhood, all the way to the cross, so they can have assurance their sins are forgiven because God so loved the world that he gave a son to die for their sins. Father, may the birth and the death and resurrection of the Son of God be our joy and our hope this Christmas season. And Lord, as we look around the world at our dear brothers and sisters in the hardest of places, how we love them and have nothing to offer them other than the great hope of the birth of Christ, the game changer, the baby who was a king, the baby who can save every person in the world that he created. We love that baby. We love you, King Jesus. Make your name great today. Make your kind of love, the only true love, great today in our hearts. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen. Philippians 2 is going to be our focus uh, this morning. Philippians 2. Some of you were peeking during that prayer at that baby. No, just kidding. Philippians 2. Philippians 2 is our focus this morning. Um, <clears throat> Paul is sitting in a prison, awaiting the possibility of execution. Could be marched out any day to be executed for crimes against the state for advancing this gospel of Jesus Christ. So I would imagine, if I were Paul, these would be anxious days if I were sitting in a prison. But instead of anxiety in Philippians, Paul writes a little astonishing letter about joy, calls the church to continue to live in joy. And Paul writes this letter because Paul is not just experiencing this now. The Christians who've only been Christians for some time, short period of time, in Philippi are beginning to experience this opposition too. There's a threat of them losing their property, their rights, maybe even their lives because of their newfound faith in Jesus. And so Paul writes this letter to them to encourage them and to call them to continue to follow Christ no matter what. And what Paul recognized, whether by people sharing it with him or whatever, that there were two big threats. One of them was this threat uh, from the outside of persecution and opposition. And Paul, at the end of chapter 1, will say, keep on, be courageous, continue to advance the gospel. This is the mission it's worth even lo losing your life for. And there's a second threat, an internal threat, that Paul speaks to, and I want to call our attention to and meditate on this morning. It was 
an incredibly relevant word for these Philippian Christians almost 2,000 years ago. And I think you'll find, wow, God is speaking to us too in this, in this time, in this year, as we approach 2021, as we finish up this fascinating year. A year of maybe for you, a year of potentially a lot of relational strain, perhaps. What Paul was finding is that the circumstances that they were going through was beginning to, the, the circumstances were beginning to reshape their relationships within the church. And what Paul wants them to do instead is to let the gospel reshape their relationships. And that's going to be our focus this morning in chapter 2. If you remember anything about Philippians, you might remember this phrase, whatever happens, walk worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's the big message that Paul wants to get through. No matter the circumstances, whatever happens, and he's thinking about prison time for some of these people. Whatever happens, walk worthy of the gospel of Christ. The gospel is the measure for our lives through 2020, through every year. The gospel is the standard. The gospel is the measure. And that's what we want to keep pursuing and seeking to live after Christ. Well, as I said, when we get to chapter 2, Paul is now speaking specifically one way to walk worthy of the gospel. And he's talking about walking worthy of the gospel in your relationships with other people. Notice chapter 2, verse 1, Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. Don't know if you have your Bible device or whatever. I encourage you to follow along. Philippians chapter 2. Here is the text. Actually, this is the point I want us to make this morning is this, the gospel. Let the gospel reshape and restore your relationships. Let the gospel reshape and restore your relationships. Philippians 2 says this, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete. And you make my joy complete, Paul says, by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing, he says, out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships, verse 5 begins, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. I want us just big picture to think about how the gospel restores our relationship, reshapes our relationship. I have some ideas, some truths here. Um, I would encourage you, if you want to write them down, write them down. Um, maybe you want to just grab one of them, the one that annoys you the most. I didn't like any of these three points this morning. They, they, they challenge. They're, they're not comfortable. They challenge us. I would encourage you to grab one, let it, let it sit this week and think it through and see what God wants uh, you to do in view of that. The first thing I'll say is this. Three choices that we can make in taking the gospel and applying it to our relationships and letting the gospel reshape it is, is this. Don't forget the headline. I think Paul in verse 1 is suggesting to the Philippian Christians that they're beginning to forget the headline, the breaking news story. This happens with our news cycles, right? There's breaking news, and then the second day it's a story, and then by day three, oftentimes, if it's not coronavirus or a presidential election or whatever, it's gone. I mean, break, the breaking news of yesterday was just a thing of history. 
When it comes to our relationship to Jesus Christ and that relationship with others, this is a headline that we must not forget. For Paul, Paul says, look, if any of you have experienced encouragement from being united with Christ, and everybody in the Philippi was saying, well, of course we have. And if you have um, experienced any comfort from his love, well, yes, that is our experience. If any common sharing in the Spirit and if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete. Paul, I think, is suggesting to them that this is becoming a lost part of the story. But in fact, what unites you as a church, what unites the church together is not anything to do with political preferences. It's nothing to do with politics or anything like that. It has everything to do with our union with Christ, right? What brings us together is that Christ has swept us up into his grace in the story of his salvation. And I'm there and you're there. And now we find ourselves united together. We are united to Christ. And as a result of that, we are united together. And that's all of Paul's what he's saying. Have you found any encouragement from being united with Christ and all these blessings and graces that he piles up here in verse 1 are a result of that, the comfort that comes from his love, the common sharing that we have in the Spirit, the tenderness and compassion that we've experienced from God through Christ by his Spirit and oftentimes through the people of God experiencing this kind of tenderness and compassion. Paul says, hey, don't forget, this is the headline of your life. This is the headline of your church. We have together been swept up into this most amazing story. What I have found in my own soul over the years, and this year is no exception, is that I can quickly get wrapped up in the stories of the day and the narratives of the day. And then those narratives, and whether you see the narrative the way I do, can begin to define our relationship. But Paul's saying, no, no, no. No. Our relationship is because you've experienced tender compassion of Christ and so have I. We are together united with Christ. Don't, don't forget the headline. This is a headline that gets buried way too quick in our lives. This is the main thing. This is the main part of our story and the main truth of our lives. We have been united with Christ by his death, by his resurrection. That is what makes us one. Not our politics, not our preferred ideas about COVID or shutdowns or masks or whatever. That's that, that was never what brought us together. What brought us together, what brought us together is the person of Christ. Don't forget the headline. And then Paul says in verse 2, delight in this alignment. It's funny the way Paul puts it. He says, make my joy complete. And it kind of sounds like a sort of selfish apostle, right? Make my joy complete. This is about my happiness. Of course, it's not just that. Paul is using his relationship with them and building on that, saying, brings great delight to me. But what brings delight to Paul is what brings delight to the God of heaven, our Savior Jesus Christ. This kind of unity, and look how he describes it. Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. That one in spirit is a word that we could translate soulmates. 
the thing that we want to describe our relationship with our significant other, our spouse, this should describe the church, this kind of unity, this kind of alignment, delight in this alignment. I don't know if, it's, if you've had the experience of going to the chiropractor. I've had a bad back since I played soccer in high school, and I have been in chiropractors more than I would like to know. Going in there, um, there's always the uh, um, anticipation of, of some cracking and some awkward angles, and I've always wanted to video it, like my neck being turned like this. But when I walk out, after I've been realigned, ah, you have that feeling? Anybody ever have that feeling? Delights, Paul says, delight in this kind of alignment. And that's just the spine. When we as a church are aligned together, it brings great delight to Paul, yes, but to God. So what are we to be aligned around In our text, verses 1 to 4, it doesn't emphasize it, but just before that, Paul made very clear the alignment, the the focus that we can and should have as a church, and that is the advance of the faith of the gospel. This is what centers us. This is what brought us together, and this should continue to direct us and clarify the mission that is in front of us. We are here to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is our central mission. The way we say it here is to applaud God, to follow Christ, and to live on mission. But let's just step back and, and, and maybe soak in that just a minute. Don't forget that the gospel of Jesus Christ is a message of God running after his enemies, because that's where you and I were, enemies of God. God running after his enemies and not to judge them, though he could, but to bless them with eternal salvation. In other words, Paul is saying, whether persecution from outside or some relational fraying that's happening inside, get centered again around this mission to advance the love of God in Christ, to invite his enemies to become his friends and to become his worshipers. And that is our calling as much then as it is now. As one commentator puts it, the true obstacle to our unity is not the presence of legitimate differences that we'll have. We'll all have legitimate differences, many of them, hundreds of them, thousands of them in a church this size. It's not the presence of legitimate differences. It's just self-centeredness. The true obstacle to our unity remains my self-centeredness. So how do we achieve this kind of harmony? There's one word, and that is humility. Harmony rises out of this humility. And think, I mean, just look at how Paul describes it. Verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Nothing ever. Sweeping statement. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. The third thing I would suggest for you or call us to is this. Put everyone on a pedestal. Now, we warn our kids about putting people on pedestals, right? We don't want them to idolize someone because, you know, at the end of the day, we're all just human. And that's, that's true, of course. But I just want to turn the phrase a little bit. Because one of the expressions that Paul uses here is valuing others above yourselves, is to consider them towering above you. 
Because one of the graver dangers, perhaps, is that we consider some people up on a pedestal and other people down near a footstool. There's heroes in our lives and there's zeros. That's the tendency. Paul calls us to have a posture where we are looking up to everyone, considering them up here as people to serve, to have this posture of humility and service for them. Put everyone up there. And the only way to do that is to reject the kind of selfish ambition and vain conceit that we default wake up with. Me being concerned about me, what I need and what I want. And instead, living in humility, and the most concrete expression of that is verse 4. If you have a a Bible, look at it again. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. What Paul has in mind is me living a day where all I'm considering is what value can I bring to this person? How can I serve this person? How can I care for this person? What does this person need that I might be able to sacrifice and give to them? Say, man, that is, that is dreamy. It is. It's something that we should aspire to. It's something that many of us do aspire to and describes this church family. I've noticed it in just one month of being part of this church family, that these acts of humility. In Paul's world and also in our world, humility was not a virtue. Humility was a vice. It was somebody who was lowly. It was somebody who was a servant. And Paul says, yes, this is what Christ has called us to. See, you and I both know humility is never cool. Now, there is this kind of made-for-America humility where, like, you're doing some act of generosity to someone or, or somebody's doing something while the cameras are rolling so that other people can see it. Humility is never cool. Humility is grimy. Humility stinks. One of the great expressions in the Gospels of humility, you probably remember, is Jesus washing his disciples' feet. Now, um, I have five kids, and there's one thing that in terms of parenting and being a father, I oftentimes feel like a a total failure in this is because I just can't, can't get my kids to just keep wearing their shoes outside. They go outside with shoes and socks, and I buy more socks than we can lose. And everybody has shoes. And they go outside, and maybe your kids were the same. When they come back inside, no shoes, no socks. And as a pastor, I know, I'm supposed to look down and say, can I wash your feet? That never crosses my mind, ever. The only thing I ever think about is, please don't get those feet on this sofa. No go. That is the challenge of our lives is to live with this kind of humility that is grimy. It's not cool. It doesn't feel beautiful. It stinks. Jesus says, yep, that's the kind of humility that I love, that I delight in, that I lived in. One of the things that I love to do is to see when the non-Christian world out there stumbles across a Christian truth and it becomes part of, you know, culture and even the, the, the business world. So some years ago, and if you've read the book, you, you, you know where I'm going. Some years ago, uh, a gentleman by the name of Jim Collins, genius uh, researcher, wrote a great book called Good to Great. And in it, 
he identifies what he calls this level five leader, the kind of leader necessary to take a very good company to great company. And he talks about how incredible most of these CEOs are. And again, Jim Collins is not a pastor or theologian. He's just talking from his wide experience of researching companies and CEOs of companies. And Jim Collins says this, my research team was surprised, shocked really, to discover the type of leadership required for turning a good company into a great one. The good to great leaders seem to have come from Mars. Here's what he identified. These leaders are a paradoxical blend of professional will and personal humility. Personal humility of all things. There's another guy, Greg Salsiccioli. Again, not a pastor or theologian. He's an executive business coach who wrote a wonderful book called Enemies of Excellence, Seven Ways We Sabotage Our Success. Sounds like a real thriller, right? Here's how to sabotage your success. His number one enemy, where it all begins, where everything begins to fall apart, is what he calls egotism. Egotism. He says, the most basic point that sabotage happens is called good old-fashioned arrogance. When the leader thinks he knows it all, he starts to be condescending to others and impatient with anyone who disagrees with him. This, he says, leads toward broken relationships and eventually isolation. What these guys are recognizing is that humility is even good for the bottom line out there. But Paul is concerned for us in here. And this year, next year, is going to give us an opportunity to display the beauty of this kind of unity through humility. Because even if a virus goes away, 2021 will have plenty of opportunities for us to disagree with each other, won't they? Won't it? Plenty of opportunities for conflict. Where there are two people, there are opportunity for disagreement and conflict. But when the gospel is reshaping our relationships, where the gospel is reshaping our relationships, you can be sure that humility is saturating these interactions. And we need it. We need a constant dose of it. Because just when we think we're making progress, we feel a little bit like Winston Churchill. Love this. We're all worms, yes, but I do believe I am a glowworm. <laughs> just when we get on the same plane, we're all broken, finite humans. Yes, but I'm a little better broken, finite human. Maybe that's just me. feels that way. Put everyone on a pedestal. Not to be, Paul's not calling us to a commitment to low self-esteem. That's not it. It's that in our total posture and our outlook of life, we are looking up to people in terms of how can I serve you, not looking down at people. Why should we do this? Why, why would I want to do this? Why would I want to live at this kind of unity? Say, I, I have some really passionate convictions about some of these things, Andrew, and you're the new guy. Who are you to tell us this? <laughs> um, but this is, this is Paul. This is God's word, Philippians 2. But, here, but here's the reason. The reason is because of Christ himself. A couple years back, Dan Iacoviello opened up this text, chapter 2, verses 6 to 8, 
and emphasize the humility of God. This is what brought me to actually thinking about teaching on this text this week is verses 6 to 8. It's a beautiful Christmas text. It's more than Christmas. It's Good Friday, Easter. It's the whole thing. But here's the reason why. Do you remember these lines? Paul says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who... Being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. And here it is. He took the very nature of a servant, was made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself further still by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. He made himself a servant. The word is slave. We can't stand that word for obvious reasons in the United States. It's one who was totally depraved of rights. Here is the man with all rights who does whatever necessary to serve the interests of fallen and broken people like us. We in America, we, we love our equality, and it's a God-given thing, no doubt. We love our equality. This text answers the question, can I really put people on a pedestal and see my life as serving others while maintaining equality? Because most people don't think that's the case. Either we're equal or you're my servant. This, this text shows that from a Christian standpoint, that's not the case. I ne- you can't take my equality. I can't lose my equality. And because of that, I'm all the more inspired to seek to serve you in humility. How does God view this humility? Therefore, if you've been around church at all, you know these lines. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What does God think of this kind of grimy, sweaty, bloody, humble service? He delights in it. He loves it. It is beautiful. This kind of humility that is necessary to lead to this kind of harmony and oneness. Don't forget the headline. Delight in alignment. Put everyone on a pedestal. What I'd like to encourage you to do is this, in view of this text, to walk away from this text and ask yourself, where is their selfish ambition? I think we all probably know there's more there than we even recognize. So where is the selfish ambition? And if you're really courageous, ask your spouse. They're, they're clear on where your selfish ambition is. <laughs> but, then, but then when it becomes clear, then repent from it. Confess it for what it is. Confess it as sin, the selfish ambition that Christ calls us to run away from and instead live in humility. Diedrich Bonhoeffer is a pastor and theologian through World War II. He was executed as a martyr by Hitler and participating in a conspiracy um, against Hitler. And he served the church in Germany and also in the United States. 
He wrote a little book called Life Together. Life Together. And it's a wonderful little book about living through uncertain times, obviously for the church in Germany, um, really, really challenging time. He says some amazing things, very insightful, very biblical. One of them he says is this, we can show humility to others by, by holding our tongues and refusing to speak uncharitably about others. Boy, that was good then, even more now in our communication age. What a practice. Another one that is, is a weakness of me that I've got to keep growing in is this. Listen long and patiently so that you understand the needs of your brothers and sisters. Again, that's that posture of humility and not just putting people on a pedestal, but listening long and patiently. But then there was this one. Wow, this one took my breath away. Bonhoeffer says, bear the burden of others by working to preserve their freedoms, working to preserve their freedoms, and then forgiving their sinful abuse of the freedoms. That is so true, so good, so needed. Bear the burdens of others by working to preserve their freedoms and then forgiving their sinful abuse because we all know that is where our hearts are inclined to go. Instead of serving others, instead what we have a tendency to do is use this to our own advantage. I hope you are, you feel like I am, proud person pursuing humility, wanting to grow in humility. One of the things that you might do as you look past this, uh, this last year is, is look, for, look for someone that you know that you have some disagreement. And if you're really courageous, again, somebody with some political differences uh, from you. And, and, and have them to lunch, take them to coffee, and if they're a brother or sister in Christ, you could start the conversation by saying, you know what, even though we don't see eye to eye on this, we've made that really clear that we don't see eye to eye on this, we are both united to Christ, and I just want to celebrate that. And then I want to know, how can I serve you? What can I do to pray? How can I be praying for you? You talk about reshaping our relationships. This may be the very sort of thing that needs to happen for you and in some of the relationships that you have with other Christians. Don Whitney summarizes a really important truth from this text. He's a professor of spiritual formation, and he says this, and I just want to end with this because it, it I think, grips us in a really helpful way. Christianity is a religion of concern for the other. When we think about Christianity and what it is, it's a message of God choosing to take concern for us and of Christ taking on human form to be concerned for us, even when we're not even concerned with our deepest needs. And when Christ calls us to follow him, he calls us to follow him as servant people concerned more for the other? What is the interest of the other? How can I be an advantage to them rather than living to my own? May God help us to continue to grow in this. Let's pray together. Lord God, thank you for your word, which is so, so necessary, so valuable. Thank you for how it speaks to us in the very sort of ways that we need, whether we like it or not. And I pray, Lord, that you would cause 
This truth, Philippians 2, 1, 2, 4, to define us personally. I pray, Lord, that we would be able to see real growth in this area as we strive to live in humility and putting the interests of others around us, our family, our church family, our neighbors and our neighborhood, our community. I pray, Lord God, that you would help us to live in this humility. Please be so kind as to point out in our lives where there is selfish ambition and where there is vain conceit and give us the grace to run away, to repent from those sins. And Lord, grow in us. Grow in us humility for your glory. Thank you, Lord God. We praise you that we are here this morning together worshiping you because of your great monumental life of humility. Apart from your humility, we would be lost. Apart from your humility, we would be guilty forever. Through your humility, we are redeemed from our self-centeredness. Our souls are being reshaped, and so are our relationships. And I ask you, Lord God, that you would just continue that work in us. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen.